0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 32 for our time together this morning. (coughs) Follow along with me as I read, beginning in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dadanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havala, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabtika. The sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Syria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nephtahim, Pathrosim, Kaslehim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber, and to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmavath, Gerar, Had- Hadoram, Yuzel, Dikla, Obal, Obimeel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, and their nations, and from these nations, these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, so this is a, uh, a new Toledoth section in uh, the book of Genesis. So if you remember, Toledoth is the Hebrew word for generations. You see it there in verse 1. These are the generations, the Toledoth, of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we saw the generations of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 5, verse 1, we saw the generations of Adam. In Genesis 6, verse 9, we saw the the generations of Noah. And now in Genesis 10, verse 1, we see the generations of the sons of Noah, where we uh, see how the world was populated after the flood. Uh, So what we have here in Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. We've encountered a couple of genealogies up till up to this point in the book of Genesis, but uh, commentators note the uniqueness of this particular genealogy, not only in the Old Testament, but also in a- the ancient world. Uh, in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, there's not a single document that lays out how the nations of the earth originated quite like what we find here in Genesis chapter 10. There are parallel creation stories and, and parallel flood stories, but there is nothing like the accounting of the nations in ancient Near Eastern literature. So in that regard, this genealogy is unique. But this genealogy is also unique in its structure, all right? So there are 70 nations mentioned in this genealogy. Japheth has seven sons and seven grandsons for a total of 14 descendants. Uh, Ham has 30 descendants, and Shem has 26 descendants for a total of 70 descendants, 70 nations. Uh, And while not every nation in the Old Testament is represented here, one commentator notes that the fact that there are 70 nations in this genealogy, right? So seven being a number of perfection and 10 being a number of completeness, seven times 10 is. 70, it shows that this table of nations is representative of the totality of all peoples. It's it's, it's a way of saying that uh, all the nations of the earth come through the sons of Noah. A complete list of nations in that regard. Uh, The order of Noah's sons is given to us in Genesis 10, verse 1, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yet you'll notice that Moses gives the genealogy in reverse order. And he begins with the sons of Japheth in verses 2 to 5. Then the sons of Ham in verses 6 to 20. And then lastly, the sons of Shem in verses 21 to 31. What we're going to do for our time together this morning is we're going to draw out a few lessons as we move through each one of these family lines. We're going to show... And they ultimately point to Jesus, who is the hope of the nations. So look first there at the sons of Japheth in verses 2 to 5. These are the the coastland peoples who spread in their lands, each with their own language and their clans and their nations. This is by far the shortest list of the, the three because the descendants of Japheth would uh, spread out to the north and to the west, places like modern-day Iran, Turkey, Greece, and beyond. I think one commentator even mentioned uh, you know going into like Spain and England, that kind of thing. And since uh Japheth's name means expansion, it's it's fitting that Japheth's descendants would do just that, that they would expand, that they would go out into all these different places. And so Uh, we don't really hear much about Japheth's descendants because they're far away from Israel, and thus they're of very little concern to Israel. Uh, There is, however, one one name in in Japheth's genealogy that might be familiar to us, and that is Magog. In Ezekiel 38, there was a man named Gog of the land of Magog who represents the nations that will gather together against the people of God at the end of history. We see this battle reiterated in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. Uh, Other than that, most of the names might not be very familiar to us. Yet, God has not forgotten the coastland peoples spread in their lands. God has not forgotten them. Uh, Turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, the prophet Isaiah writes, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And then notice that last phrase of verse four, and the coastlands wait for his law. So what Isaiah is saying here is that the descendants of Japheth are waiting expectantly for the law of the Lord to be implanted in their hearts. It's a reference to the gospel going out to the Gentiles. But then if you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 25, in Jeremiah 25, the prophet Jeremiah mentions this this judgment from the Lord's Hand that he will make all the nations drink of and, and nations the nations that are mentioned there are nations that we just read about here in, in Genesis chapter 10. But if you look at, at verse 22 of Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah mentions all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea. That's what Jeremiah is saying is that while a day is coming when God will visit salvation upon the Gentiles, a day is also coming when God will visit judgments upon them. Thus, we find here our first lesson to be a blessing to the nations. To be a blessing to the nations. You see, we have not been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ in order that we might be cold and indifferent to the nations. It was the mission of Israel to be a blessing to the nations, and it is the mission of the church to be a blessing to the nations. We must remember that God has not lost sight of the nations. We are a prime Example of this, and therefore the people of God must not lose sight of the nations. That's what's so exciting to me about participating in the Operation Christmas Child shoebox campaign. It's a way uh, for us as a family, for us as a church, to be part of what God is doing in the lives of children in need around the world. And, And next Sunday... Uh, we have the, uh, the opportunity of having uh, Gordon Balfour. He's the executive uh, director of Mission Eurasia Canada coming and, and presenting about the Action Bible New Testament project. And uh, we're also privileged to, to have Brent and Celeste and their family come and present about their upcoming move to, to Kenya. It's, it's going to be a good old Mission Sunday. Don't want to miss that. It will be a good opportunity for us to hear about what God is doing among the nations and how we as a church can get involved in what God is doing among the nations. All right, so those are the descendants of Japheth who teach us to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, but then we come to the descendants of Ham and, and they're going to interact more closely with the nation of Israel. Uh, last week, we looked at how Ham dishonored his father and, and how Noah pronounced a curse on the descendants of Ham, specifically Ham's son Canaan. And, and uh, remember, the people of Israel would have heard these words as they were coming out of the land of Egypt and entering the land of promise, the land of Canaan. So there's there's going to be a significant amount of, of attention given to the descendants of Ham because the people of Israel we have been very familiar with the descendants of Ham. Now, I'm not going to go through the uh, the meanings of all of these names. Uh, but I do want to draw out a, a couple of lessons from the line of Ham for us. In, in verse 6, the sons of Ham are given to us. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. In verse 7, the sons of Cush and Rehama are given to us. And then in verses 8 to 9, it says Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's an odd interjection to put into this genealogy, isn't it? Well, it should be noted that uh, this reference to Nimrod being a mighty man is not necessarily a compliment. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, we read about the Nephilim, right? The, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown and how they made a name for themselves by promoting violence on the earth. And we see this, this is exactly the pattern of Nimrod. In verse 10, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. And we're going to read about the, the tower of Babel when we get to Genesis chapter 11. But this is going to be the place where the people are going to attempt to build a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves, right? And so the, 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 the city is simply living out the principles of its founder. They're just acting on what they've seen modeled for them. But what's interesting is that the word for Babel here is the same word used to refer to the city of Babylon, which is also in the land of Shinar, according to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Might be a little familiar with the city of Babylon. Uh, But then in verse 11, it says that Nimrod also went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Now both Babylon and, and Assyria are going to be very difficult neighbors for the people of Israel. In 722 BC, the Assyrians would destroy The northern kingdom of Israel and then in in 586 BC, the Babylonians would destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. So they're not going to be very pleasant neighbors for Israel. But notice that Nimrod is remembered for two things that the, the world admires. Personal prowess and political power. Personal prowess and political power. Yet what is Nimrod lacking in his life? He's lacking the worship of the one true God. Right now, if you remember from Genesis chapter 4, the descendants of Cain were known for building cities, for farming and for music and for technology, right? They were known for all these cultural developments. But then you get to the descendants of Cain. And what are they known for? Well, they're known for none of that. They're known for being a people who call upon the name of the Lord. And even though the line of Seth doesn't have the earthly success and influence like the line of Cain, it's the line of Seth through which the blessing of God comes. And you see, the thing about Nimrod is that he's the great-grandson of Noah, right? So he has access to the knowledge of the one true God. But there is no indication that he worshipped the one true God or that he used the skill God had given him to live for God and to build God's kingdom. Instead, we get the impression that Nimrod used his might to make a name. For himself, And he used his might to make a name for himself. Now, when you, you come to Judges chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And he says to him, the Lord is with you. What? O mighty man of valor. Right? It's the same Hebrew word used to describe Nimrod. But if you know the story of Gideon, you know that he's in this moment he's hiding from his enemies. And he doesn't, he doesn't think of himself as being very mighty. But God assures Gideon that he will be with them and that God, that, that Gideon will strike down their enemies through God's work. And how does Gideon respond? Well, he responds with. Worship. and he goes. He builds an altar and he sacrifices to the Lord because he recognizes that his might doesn't come from him, but from God who makes strong the weak. Comes from God who makes strong the weak. And it's this, this worship of the one true God that is lacking in the life of Nimrod. And so just like Adam and Eve, who in the Garden of Eden took of the fruit of the tree of which God had commanded them not to eat, seeking to live for themselves and to build their little kingdoms of one. So also Nimrod lived for himself and attempted to build his kingdom. And so he's following the, the pattern of the offspring of the serpent. But what's fascinating is that despite his personal prowess and his political power, we don't hear anything else about Nimrod in the rest of Scripture? No, apart from this text and the correlating genealogy in First Chronicles chapter one, uh, Nimrod is only mentioned in one other place. That's Micah chapter five, verse six, where the land of Nimrod is mentioned. Right, that's it. That's it for this guy. That's all we know about him. And, and I believe there's a lesson here for us. In that you can be the most famous person in the world. Uh, you can be incredibly skilled in your field. You can build great cities like Babylon and Nineveh. You can have political power. But all of that means nothing if you are not worshiping the one true God. And the only way to do anything of lasting significance in this life is it's if you live for God and build his kingdom. Now, I don't want you to hear lasting significance and think that, that we should be making a name for ourselves. No. No, I'm talking about making an eternal impact. When we arrived here at, at Boyle Gospel Chapel, one of the first meetings that I had with the leadership of the church consisted of sitting down and, and setting out our, our mission and, and vision for the church. And I remember asking everyone at the table this question. And if our church were to be on the front page of the newspaper, what would we want it to be for? And I will never forget it. Everyone at the table basically said the same thing. What if we don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper? And I thought, what a lovely response. Right? Here was a church that simply wanted to be faithful to do what God had called them to do. Not for the fanfare, not to make a name for themselves, but for the glory of God. And, and that, that is what lasting significance looks like. It's what eternal impact looks like. It looks like being faithful to do all that God has given us to do, right? It, it looks like washing dishes to the glory of God. It looks like cleaning bathrooms to the glory of God and cooking meals to the glory of God, and farming to the glory of God, and raising cattle to the glory of God, and teaching to the glory of God, and drywalling to the glory of God, and obeying our parents to the glory of God, and playing music to the glory of God, and operating heavy-duty equipment to the glory of God, of God and cutting meat to the glory of God and operating on animals to the glory of God and typing on a computer to the glory of God and beekeeping to the glory of God so that God looks glorious, not us. That's what Nimrod was lacking. That's what I hope is not lacking in us. to all, to the glory of God. Uh, next, we read about Egypt's sons. Uh, one of them being uh, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came. Uh, so the Philistines are going to be a constant thorn in the side of the, uh, the people of Israel. In fact, uh, in First Samuel chapter 17, we read about Goliath, who was uh, considered by the Philistines to be their mighty man, right? Their Nimrod, their champion. Right, but then continuing on in verse 15, it says kin fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now, now Sidon uh, should sound familiar to, to us as, as Tyre and Sidon are referenced often throughout scripture. Uh, but then there's Heth, which refers to the Hittites. And the Hittites are Canaanites under the curse of Noah and enemies of the people of God. Yet we see how God was at work even among these people all right so later in Genesis the uh, the Hittites are going to offer Abraham the choicest of their tombs for Abraham to bury his wife Sarah and then later in Israel's history we are we read about uh, this guy named Jeriah, the Hittites uh, whose name means my light is Yahweh and who had obviously come to believe in the one true God uh, now unfortunately King David, would, would eventually commit adultery with Uriah's wife and, and have Uriah killed in order to cover it up. But it would seem as though God saved Uriah and called Uriah and used Uriah to accomplish his saving purposes for the world out of this cursed people. <laughs> and, and the lesson for us here is, is that our ancestry does not determine our destiny. Our ancestry does not determine our destiny. Where where we come from does not determine where we are going. God can break the cycle of sin and and misery in any family line. I mean, you look at any one of these these family lines here, and and God has had his hand in all of them at one time or another. For example, look at Cush. So Cush is the eldest son of Ham. And Cush is from where we get the people of Ethiopia. So where in scripture does the gospel of Jesus Christ invade Ethiopia? Acts chapter 8, where Philip is empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell the good news about Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. All right, now this man is from Ethiopia. He's from the line of Cush. And he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, likely the first Ethiopian convert. right Now it would be nearly 300 years before King Ezana would adopt Christianity as the state religion. But today, 62.8 percent of Ethiopia is Christian. 62.8 percent of Ethiopia is Christian. But it began with God saving this one Ethiopian eunuch. So so if you're looking at your sketchy family history and you're discouraged, don't be discouraged. Right, because your ancestry, your ancestry does not determine your destiny. What determines your destiny is whether you have put your hope in the one true God. All right, so this week, uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Right? And if you know anything about the royal family, you know that it's not exactly squeaky clean. But really, no family is. And yet, there was always one constant over the years, and that was the queen's faith in Jesus. Right? So Christ can redeem any family line for his honor and his glory. And maybe it starts with us. Maybe the the cycle of of sin and misery ends with us and God calling us out of darkness and into his glorious light. All right. Verses 16 to 18, uh, we read about the Ites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. These are all groups that... We're going to hear more about as we move our way through, through the book of Genesis. And then in verse 20, we get this concluding statement. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And so first we, we looked at the descendants of Japheth who were far away. And, and then we looked at the descendants of Ham who were close by. And, and lastly, we look at the descendants of Shem. And Shem is left to the end because it's the line of Shem that God is going to use primarily and and through whom the Savior of the world will come. All right, I just want to point out three observations from the line of of Shem and from these concluding verses. So we looked at uh, one lesson from Japheth, two lessons from Ham, and now three closing observations. Uh, In Verses 21 to 25, we read, that Shem fathered Arpachshad, who fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber. And then there's this, there's this pivotal moment in verse 25. It says, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name is Joktan. Right, so the first observation is that there's a division that happens here. There's a division that takes place during the days of Peleg. Now commentators connect this division to what is going to take place at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11, where uh, the language of the people is going to be confused and, and the people are going to be dispersed, right? So there's a division, kind of a division multiplication thing happening there. That uh, a physical division that takes place on the earth. But then if you notice, the the genealogy here in in Genesis chapter 10 is going to follow the the line of Joktan, one of the the sons of Eber. But then in in Genesis chapter 11, the genealogy is going to follow the line of Pele, the other son of Eber, which is going to take us down to Abram, uh, who will later be called Abraham. And so what we're seeing here is not just a physical division, but a spiritual division that takes place between the, the non-elect line of Joktan and the chosen line or the elect line of Peleg. And, and it's a division that we've covered throughout Genesis, right? Where there are these individuals who are more who more accurately resemble the offspring of the serpent than and there are those who more accurately resemble the offspring of the woman. And it's a division that represents the division that will ultimately take place when the nations gather before Jesus on the last day and where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, right? When that division comes, which side will we be on? Right, I've hammered this over and over again because I don't want us thinking believing that we're good with god when we're not right when when this division takes place which side of the division will we be on that's that's the first observation that there is a division that takes place between the elect and the non-elect where do we stand But then the second observation is that there is a unity among all people. There is a unity among all people. In verses 28, no, 26 to 31, uh, we read about the sons of Joktan and where they lived. And we get this concluding statement about the sons of Shem. And then in verse 32, it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. and, And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. All right so what we're seeing here is the response to God's charge to Noah and his sons after the flood to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. And so they're responding to this and they're actually they're actually going out and they're doing what what God commanded them to do. What we realize is that all of us have the same ancestor. All of us have the same ancestor. All of us descend from Noah, who descended from Adam. Therefore, all of us, every single person, bear the image and likeness of God, giving dignity and worth to every human being. So what that means is that there is no allowance for any kind of pride that says i'm better than someone else based on ethnicity or gender or skin color or family heritage or or economic status or or whatever it might be even when we look around and we see the depravity in our world as as followers of jesus we are not to think that we're better than anyone else just because we follow jesus because by grace we're being saved were it not for grace, we would, just be, we would be as lost as everyone else. All right, so there's no, there's no allowance for any kind of pride because there's a, a unity among all people. And this leads to the third observation, and that is that it is the plan of God to redeem the nations. Right, it is the plan of God to redeem the nations. Notice at the end of each one of these three sons, Moses concludes with the same language. Alright, so in verse 5 it says, from these the coastline peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and their in their nations. Alright, so we, we saw we see lands, language, clans, nations. That's how the the descendants of Japheth are described. If you look at verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Right, so it's a different order, but the same four identifying marks. All right, again in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. As we have these, these people spread across the earth, described by lands, languages, clans, and nations. Right? So when we come to the book of Revelation, who is gathered before the throne of God? Right? There are people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. Right? That's not a coincidence. What, what this is getting at is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out into all the world. It's also not a coincidence that just as there are 70 nations that descend from Noah and his three sons, so also, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to send out 70 disciples to preach the gospel to the surrounding area. And what Jesus is doing is he sending them out to reclaim the 70 nations of the earth. So you've got these 70 disciples who represent the the totality of God's people, and they're going out into all these different nations to reclaim the totality of the nations of the earth. Now, I also don't believe it's a coincidence that this particular sermon text has fallen on this particular Sunday, September 11th. On this day, 21 years ago, and you can probably picture where you were when you discovered the news. Uh, The two planes crashed into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, The two other planes also crashed that day, one into the Pentagon building, And another one crashed in Pennsylvania in a field instead of the intended larger target of Washington, D.C. due to the heroic efforts of the passengers and crew on board United Airlines Flight 93. According to the the 9-11 Memorial and Museum website, the attacks killed 2,977 people from, get this, 93 nations. 2,753 people were killed in New York. 184 people were killed at the Pentagon. And 40 people were killed on Flight 93. In addition to the people who were killed from the attacks, thousands of others were also injured. Yet on a day defined... By darkness and tragedy, there is hope. There is hope. And the only hope for a broken and hurting world is Jesus Christ, who came to this world to live the perfect life that we were unable to live, to die the death we deserved to die, to be raised from the dead, to give eternal life, And forgiveness of sins to all who believe. This is good news. Not not just for 93 nations, but for all the nations. This is good news for all people. Not not just for the sons of Shem, but also for the sons of Ham and, and Japheth as well. Good news of great joy for all people is what the angel announced. At Jesus' birth. All right, so think about it. How much of the world do you think God wants to redeem? How much of the world do you think God wants to redeem? Does God just want to redeem Canada? Does God just want to redeem the United States? Does God just want to redeem Ukraine? No. No, God wants to redeem the world. Right now, this doesn't mean that all people will be saved, but by God's grace, people will be saved from every tribe and language and nation because Titus chapter two, verse four says that Jesus gave himself for us, church, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness And wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. And so the hope for the nations doesn't reside in personal prowess or political power. The hope for the nations resides in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is our only hope. But then here's the crazy part that God accomplishes his saving purposes for the world through his spirit-empowered witnesses, through those of us who believe, through you, through me, through all of us. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, His closing words to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so it is that the God who created all people has a plan to redeem all people. And by God's grace, we have a part to play in God's redemption of the world, in God's redemption of the nations. So may we go out from here with that mission in mind and with the hope of Christ ever before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Uh, we ask that you would give us a vision for the nations. uh, That we would not be short-sighted, but that we would embrace your plan to redeem a people from every tribe and language and nation. Whether that's spending our lives in the uttermost parts of the earth or using our resources to further your kingdom. Whatever it is, God, that the church would continue to push back against the gates of hell Invade the kingdom of darkness with your glorious light. You, God, are God of the nations. You are the hope for the world. We pray that you would empower each of us by your Holy Spirit to build your kingdom to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.